You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I love, love, love this time of year. I love the fall. I love the changing of the leaves. I love football season. Let's just be honest. It's more about football than it is the season. Uh, I love Friday nights and watching high school football. And I love Saturday morning game day. It's just so much fun. I grew up doing this and I just love football. I love, I'm I'm just a sports fan. And so uh, we thought it'd be fun for everybody to support their local team today or or maybe NFL team or whatever team, whatever colors you're wearing and I'm glad that you did that and I thought we'd have some fun with that today. I know this has been a big week for high school football, especially because there have been some rivalry games that have been fun to watch. And uh, so I I love this time of year. I love this season and I love what sports uh, does for our culture. And and, uh, one one of the things though about game day that I've noticed and even kind of looking around, I do see a lot of orange. I I do see some crimson. Uh, I do see some some, uh, blue. Uh, And so I see some different colors. And so what happens on Friday night, a lot of times and on Saturday morning, is that game day can tend to divide us when you think about it. Game day is kind of divisive because we all are kind of pulling for our team and, and our school, and, and so it can be a little bit divisive, but the good thing is this division, I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter what school or team you pull for. We understand that sports are just for fun, and at the end of the day, uh, it's just a game. We can overlook whatever color or whatever loyalty you, know, you uh, observe and you follow today because uh, at the end of the day, we're here today uh, and we're united around one thing, at least one thing, and that one thing this morning is our love for Jesus. We're, we're, we're a room filled with people who love and worship the King. You see, our hope is not in a football team. Our hope is not in a win or in a loss. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in Jesus. And so for those of you who are Christians today, you have in fact trusted Christ for your salvation. You've dedicated your life to him and now you are serving and worshiping him. That means that now you have a hope in him, a hope for your salvation, an assurance that heaven is your home, You understand that he's given you a purpose. You understand that he has given you forgiveness, how to, you know, that your sins are forgiven, but then as well, he teaches us how to forgive other people that have hurt us. He tells us that our past doesn't define us, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what sins you've committed, they can't stop us from enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus and living our life to the glory of God. Because of our faith in Jesus, he's given us a new identity. So we're not bound by the old Trent. We're not bound by the old person. Because of Christ, you and I have a brand new identity as a son or daughter of the Most High King. And so if you're a Christian today, this hope is found in Jesus. We're free from sin. Yeah, go ahead. It's okay. We're free from sin. We're, 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 we're free from the fear of death. And now we, in fact, have a relationship with Jesus. We walk in here today, and despite your circumstances, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you know that he is in control, that he is going to guide you. He's gonna use whatever situation you're facing for your good and for his glory. 
So we can root for whatever team we want to root for today because at the end of the day, Jesus is our king and his mission precedes any athletic program. And so that's what unites us today. Now the tension uh, and, and kind of where we, we really wrestle with this on Sunday morning and right here in this room is that not everyone in here has experienced the hope of the gospel. You walk in here today and you don't know that heaven is your home. You walk in here today with a heavy heart. You don't have hope uh, that God has forgiven you. You don't have any hope for your future. Uh, you don't have hope that God is in control. You walk in here today and there is just a, an emptiness within your soul, an emptiness within your heart, and there's a heaviness there. And the reason why that emptiness is there and that heaviness is there is because there's a division between you and your creator, God. You walk in here today and maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you know, you're a college student or high school student and you walk in here today simply because your parents made you get up and drug you into this room. And so for you, you know, faith is about what your parents believe or faith is about you know, what, what your parents want and it's not really yours. You're just kind of here, you're skeptical of who Jesus is. Maybe you've been involved in church or Christians before and, and they just kind of rubbed you the wrong way and you're just like, I don't know about those people. And because of that skepticism and, and because of that experience, you walk in here today not really expecting to uh, feel anything different or, or not really expecting to experience God today. You're, you're just kind of here. Well, my prayer for you over the last couple of weeks and uh, all week and this morning has been that today would be different for you. For whatever reasons, my heart and my prayer has been that God would show up in this room and specifically in your heart, in your mind, and he would begin to unveil and uncover some truths that maybe you've been resisting or maybe you've been overlooking. And my hope today is at the end of this message, uh, you would actually give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time. And so that's been my prayer. At the end of this message, I'm gonna lead you in an experience that, that, will, that will help you make that step today. And so uh, we saw several people in the first service make that decision. I, I pray that today in this service, we have even more. And to help us get to that point, I wanna share at least two reasons that we have hope in Jesus this morning. And so in your Bibles, in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, we're gonna read several verses here, beginning in verse 13, that, that teach us several things about who Jesus is and what he's gonna do in our life. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about this message and I'm excited because it talks about some deep truths that, that we don't often talk about in the church. And uh, what, the reason why we have this, uh, this letter is because Paul, the Apostle Paul went to a city called Thessalonica in uh, Greece and uh, he shared the gospel there. And as he began to share the gospel, uh, people came to know Christ and out of that developed the first church in this city and Paul later would leave. And, and then the, the, the church really started to struggle because they had seen some of their Christian friends die. And, and, and that death of those Christian friends uh, really led to a lot of suffering and a lot of, a lot of troubling questions, and I didn't really know how to wrestle with death. And I think that's probably true for many of us, too. We've, we've kind of struggled with that concept, and, and what does that actually mean? And so when Paul writes this letter to them, we believe it was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and so that's why it's in our New Testaments today, and uh, it's the first letter that he wrote, wrote to this church in Thessalonica, so we call it 
1 Thessalonians. And so in chapter 13, he begins to address some of the issues that they were having. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be here on the screen beside me. Here's what the, the, the scripture says in verse 13. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, several things I want us to learn from this text today. And the first thing is he starts out by saying, uh, he's talking about Christians who are experiencing death in their church. And he's, he's saying that we actually have hope. He says, I don't, you, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be um, uninformed about this truth. And, and, and there are uh, those without Christ who have no hope. I don't want you to grieve for those who have passed away, like those who have had no hope, because we actually do have hope. Our hope is grounded in the reality, he says in verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again. So it's not simply the fact that Jesus lived a good life or was a good moral teacher. That has nothing to do with our hope today uh, for heaven or a hope in our salvation. Uh, those are great things that, that, that other people experienced in their own religion. Muhammad, they say, was a good man. Confucius, they say, was a good man. A Buddha was a good man, but every single one of those leaders died. Well, Jesus died as well, but the difference is he actually said he was gonna die, and he actually said he was gonna raise from the grave, and he actually did it. And so that is where our hope is grounded. Here's what the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, so his death had purpose. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, the scriptures predicted this and prophesied this, that he was buried, so he physically died, and he was buried under the ground, that he was raised on the third day. He came back to life, again, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to, listen to this, Cephas, then to the 12, the 12 disciples, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, listen, are still living. So what Paul is saying here is that when Jesus died, he was buried, we saw him die, we saw him buried, and then later on the third day, we later saw the risen Jesus. And so 500, more than 500 men and women saw the resurrected Jesus and Paul, at this time, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's saying, look, these folks are still alive. So if you wanna go talk to them about what they saw, go check it out, go talk to them. They saw him firsthand. And so the, the reality for us is that the resurrection means everything. Jesus is not dead, Jesus is alive. And because he is alive today, we have hope. Specifically, I wanna talk about two areas of hope today. So, number one, if you're taking notes, 
Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, we have hope in death. We have hope in death. Now, for the unbelievers in the room, there is no hope. Verse 13 says, Paul says, I don't want you to be like unbelievers who have no hope. And the Bible says that no faith in Christ means that there is no hope after death. It means that you will spend an eternity separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. And there in that place, those without faith in Christ will spend an eternity suffering the consequences of their rejection of Jesus. Unbelievers hope that everything's gonna work out. You know, they're hoping they live a good life or something to that effect. But in fact, there is no hope without Jesus. For the follower of Jesus, Paul says, we don't, we don't live our life as if we don't have any hope. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be uninformed about this. We don't grieve like others who have no hope because as a believer in Jesus, we are confident about our future. It's not a, I, I, I guess it's gonna happen or you know, you know, it, it might work out. No, for a believer, it's not a maybe. It's a sure future. There's an assurance that in our death, it will not be the end. Three times here in this passage, he uses the figure of speech uh, that they have fallen asleep. Now, he's not referring to unbelievers in that sense. He's talking about believers. He's talking about Christians. Now, when they die, he's saying they are falling asleep to help us understand that hope that we have in death. So as a believer, we die from this world, and then when we leave this world, then we are ushered in, our spirit is ushered into the presence of God immediately. Elsewhere, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the criminal on the cross when he was being crucified that today you will be with me in paradise. So Paul offers us hope to those who have experienced the grief of, of, of a believer that has died. I know many of you come in here today and, and you've experienced um, that loss. You've experienced that grief. But for those who have lost a loved one, we grieve differently. He's not saying that we don't grieve at all. He's not saying don't be upset about that. In fact, Jesus was very upset when one of his good friends, Lazarus, was, actually died. The Bible says that he wept. And so we know that in death there is sorrow. There, there is sadness. We do hurt. But because of scripture like this, we remind ourselves that death is not final. We have a hope that we're gonna see our loved ones again one day. We have a hope that those who have fallen asleep are with the Lord today in perfect blessing and perfect joy and perfect happiness. Now, how does this flesh out for us? Here in verse 17, he says that those who remain alive will be caught up together with those that have passed away in the clouds with Jesus. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is the rapture. And, and for those who have heard this word or, or know what this is, you know that the rapture is for believers. Rapture is not for unbelievers. The rapture is for those who have given their life to Jesus. And so the word rapture itself is not found in the Bible, um, but we do see this understanding specifically here in this text. And the rapture is simply when Jesus appears, and when he appears in this moment, he will be taking up, we will be caught up with him in the air. 
those who are alive and even those who have passed away that are not with us anymore. In that moment, he catches us up, he raptures us to be with him out of this world into heaven together. Now again, the word rapture isn't mentioned here, but how do we get to this word? Well, when Jerome uh, translated the Greek New Testament, the New Testament was written in the language of Greek, when he translated that into Latin, uh, he came across this word caught up, and the Greek word is harpazo, and the Latin word for caught up is rapti. And so that's where we get the idea and concept of being raptured from that Latin word. So what this text is telling us is that we will be caught up, we will be raptured together with Jesus in the air. Jesus mentioned this event in Matthew 24. He says, at the coming of the Son of Man, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with the hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, he says, keep watch. In other words, be ready. Watch for him, be ready for him. Because he says, you do not know on what day your Lord will come. His point is that I will rapture my church, I will appear and bring them to be with me, and you don't know when that day is going to come, so be ready. Be prepared. So my question for you in the room today is, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that event? I think that there are plenty of signs all over the world today that would lead me to believe that Jesus could return and rapture his church at any moment. I believe that he could come tonight. I believe that he could come tomorrow. Um, and I believe that he could come in a thousand years. We just simply do not know. He specifically tells us here in Matthew 24, you don't know the day or the hour of that event. Jesus himself says that the son doesn't even know. And so the concept for us as we think about this isn't that we need to dive in and start you know, circling you know, words and adding you know, all these mathematical things to try to figure out the day and, uh, because you're just not gonna do it. Anybody that says this is the day that Jesus is gonna return is a liar because it's obvious it's not in the Bible. Um, so the best thing that we can do from this is not walk away from here, you know, dialed in on trying to figure that out. We should just focus on loving Jesus, making disciples, and loving other people. That's what we're called to do now. Jesus says, are you ready? The rapture is a real thing and it is for believers. But secondly, the rapture is also a glorious reunion. It's a glorious reunion. Think about what he's saying here. Even though we experience grief and death, Paul says that there is a hope in the reality that the rapture brings us this anticipation this looking forward to this moment where we will be united with him and with all of our loved ones who have died and passed from this world. That's a glorious reunion when you think about how exciting that day is actually gonna be. In verse 14, he says, all the saints that have gone before us, all those who have fallen asleep, are gonna be coming back with Jesus. And then he says in verse 16 that their bodies are gonna be raised first. And so uh, those who have died actually have an advantage over us. And the advantage is he says, first of all, the dead in Christ will be raised. So how, how is it that they will be coming with Jesus and that they will be rising first out of the ground? Well, this is an amazing truth that we see in the scripture that in this moment, 
when Jesus is appearing, the spirit of that person has remained alive and well because when we face death, what happens? We face death, the scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the moment you pass away from this life, your spirit will live on somewhere. With faith in Jesus, you will fall asleep from this world to wake in the presence of eternity with Jesus. And so your spirit is alive, but your body goes into the grave. Your body goes into a casket. It is a shell, it goes into the ground. But on this glorious day, the trumpet will sound, the archangel will give a shout, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Their bodies come out of the ground, their spirits coming with Jesus, and in the air together, the Bible says in a twinkling of an eye, their bodies will be made glorified. The perishable will be made imperishable. And then all those who are alive, if we are still alive on this glorious day, we too will be ushered up into the air, our bodies from the perishable body, this old body that's been wearing down on us for many years and breaks down on us every day a little bit more, all the aches, all the pain, all the sin, all the frustration, he says, in the twinkling of an eye, we will have a resurrected, glorified body and we will go and be with Jesus. Isn't that exciting? That's a glorious reunion. He says the archangel will, will give a command here. And so we don't know exactly. We know that there is only one archangel mentioned by name in the Bible. His name is Michael. Uh, there's another angel mentioned by name. Uh, his name is Gabriel, but he's not an archangel. And then there's one other angel mentioned by name. You know his name? Lucifer, yeah. So uh, he's the prince of darkness today and because of his sin fell from heaven. And so we assume that it's gonna be the archangel Michael that gives this shout, the trumpet is sounded and we will be reunited with all of the, our loved ones who were believers and with our savior that day. Now it reminds me of the old gospel song, what a glorious day. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. You see, folks, this is something that we should look forward to. This is something that is going to be a glorious reunion. On that day, I'll be reunited with my grandparents who have, who have long gone before me. I will be reunited with my mother who will be coming in the clouds with Jesus. And I'll be reunited with my sister on that day. What a glorious day that will be. When you think about that, I, I know what happens a lot of times. Um, a lot of times people get a little scared about this. They get a little intimidated by this. But here's what the scripture is teaching us here. Scripture's teaching us that the rapture will be a day of comfort, not a day to be feared, not a day that, that should scare us. In verse 18 in our text here, he says, let these words therefore encourage you. The word encourage there is, is the same word we get for the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is paraclete. So he is our comforter. He is our encourager. These words should comfort you. These words should encourage you. Now I know, if you're you know, my age, you watch some pretty you know, poorly produced movies in the 80s and 90s that scared the socks off of you, you know? We saw that. But the reality is, we should turn to the, the word of God and understand that this is a day to be treasured, a day of excitement, 
of reunion and of joy. Now, for the unbeliever, this is a scary moment. For the unbeliever, the rapture will take place. Thousands of people, we don't know how many, will be taken to be uh, with Jesus. Those who will be left will face what's known as the tribulation. But it'll be a seven year period, and it'll be the worst time in the history of the world. During that season, half the population of the world will be killed by various catastrophes, and that won't be a, a, a day or a time that you'll be excited to be alive. It'll be the worst and most terrible time on earth. After that seven year period, the second coming of Jesus will take place. Now, process this with me. The rapture is not the second coming. The rapture is when Jesus appears to rapture and take his church to be with him. The second coming of the Lord is called the day of the Lord in the New Testament. And the day of the Lord happens after the seven year tribulation and this is when Jesus comes with his church to battle against the enemy, Satan and his army, ending in the battle of Armageddon. Now we know because we've read the end of the book that Satan and his army will be defeated and Satan will be bound and Jesus will have victory, his church will have victory, praise God. And in that moment, uh, Jesus will separate the goats from the sheep. Matthew 24 speaks of this, and essentially the, the sheeps are representing those who have faith in Jesus. The goats are those who rejected Jesus during their time on earth. All believers at that time will then live with Christ after that separation and what's known as the millennial reign. That's a thousand year reign here on earth. But a glorious time. Satan will be bound. And it'll be a glorious time together. After that millennial reign comes what's known, Revelation 20, as the great white throne judgment. Now, the great white throne judgment is the day that all unbelievers will face the wrath of God for eternity. You don't have to worry if you are a believer in Jesus today because you won't be at the great white throne judgment. But after that day, those who have rejected Jesus will then spend an eternity in what is known as the lake of fire. Those who have put their faith in Jesus, the scripture says on that day, will then enter an eternal state of blessing and joy into the new earth and the, the, the new heaven. Be a glorious time for those who have faith. Now you say, how do you know that you'll be with Jesus in all this? There's a lot of stuff you just threw at us, Trent. Well, I would say that if you've ever felt guilty for your sins, if you've ever experienced shame because of your sin, if you've ever hurt someone and you did something that you knew was wrong and you felt guilty for that, the, the, the feeling of guilt that we experience is to show us that we have disobeyed God. God has written upon every human being's heart a, a, a conscience, a right and wrong, but uh, Roman, the book of Romans tells us that that conscience always kind of deceives us. Some things we think are right and some things we, we think are okay. We can excuse our sins sometimes. And so there's an inner conflict in our life because we are utterly sinful. The Bible calls this disobedience sin. In fact, you're familiar with this. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says that, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so every single one of us, because of our sin, have experienced the guilt and the weight of our sin. But I'll jump back to the point here. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, our sins can be forgiven. So yes, we have messed up. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have fallen short. 
But because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, we can, in fact, have and experience forgiveness. Now, the reality is, though, sin is not just you know, something that we kind of did that was bad. We like to kind of categorize. It was just a white lie. It was just kind of a little sin. And, and so we like to excuse that or, or, or it's not that, I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not as bad as the guy that killed somebody. I'm not as bad as that guy. So I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, right? The Bible doesn't explain uh, the human heart in that condition. The Bible explains the human heart born into this world as utterly sinful. We are fallen at the very core of our spirit. There's nothing that we can do to get rid of this sin, and this sin is rebellion against God. It's us saying, forget about you, God. I don't really care about what you think. I don't really care if it's true or not. I wanna do what I wanna do, and I wanna do it when I wanna do it. I wanna live my life my way. That is essentially the definition of what sin is. And the Bible says that that sin nature was, was in us the moment we were born, and the result of that sin is that it separates us from God. And because of that separation, we cannot experience heaven. God cannot allow sin into heaven. The Bible says we are enemies of God. We're children of wrath, spiritually blinded. And without Jesus, this is who we are. However, we move into this season of, okay, I feel this guilt, so I gotta do something with it. So what do I do with it? All of us kind of deal and handle our guilt differently. Some of us just try to make excuses for our guilt. They say, well, I did that because, you know, because they said this or, you know, they deserved it. We make excuses. We try to cover up our guilt. We can cover up our guilt by just staying really busy. Let's just stay busy, keep my mind occupied, and then I don't have to think about the ways that I'm failing or the ways that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not honoring God in my life. Some people just want to cover up that guilt by taking prescription drugs or alcohol or illegal drugs. A lot of people just want to carry the weight of that guilt. People might think, oh man, I, I did mess up. This was a terrible thing. And so what do they do? They just suffer in the weight of that guilt. You don't know how to get rid of it. You don't know how to deal with it. And so you just sit in it and you suffer in that weight. And that leads to depression, anxiety. Your joy is stolen. On your own though, there is nothing that you can do to get rid of your guilt. You know why? because you and I are guilty. We deserve it. We are guilty through and through. You and I stand before a holy God. And as we stand before this holy God, we have nothing to offer him. There is nothing we can do that God would accept as a payment for our sin that would eliminate our guilt. We try though. We try to eliminate that guilt and everything we try leads to brokenness in our life. You know what brokenness feels like. Brokenness feels like broken relationships and addiction and homelessness and suicide and anxiety and racism and depression and homelessness and political fighting and protesting and divorce and all of these things. How do we fix brokenness? How can we actually experience peace with God and, and, and deal with our guilt, deal with the shame, have freedom from that? And how can God accept us? Bible explains that the justice of God demands punishment. So that if you do a crime, you gotta pay the time. If you break the law, you pay the consequences. You break God's laws, you pay God's penalty. Romans 6, 23 that the, says that the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is in fact death. 
And that means that somebody has to pay for the sins that you and I have committed. We either pay for them or someone else pays for them. You have to pay for it or you accept Jesus's payment. So here's the good news. The good news is this. On the cross, Jesus is saying, I'll do it. God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. He never sinned. God in human form says, I will pay for your sins. I will take your place on the cross. I will take the penalty that you deserve. So on the cross, Jesus dies the death we deserve. And he takes the penalty for our sins. And he pays the debt that we owed God for the sins that we had committed. Now, the perfect payment of the death of Jesus satisfies, satisfies God's wrath and opens up a way for you and I to be forgiven and for you and I to be accepted into the family of God and for you and I to experience the hope and joy of heaven one day. So when you put your faith in Christ, everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're going to commit has been paid for. You no longer feel, have to feel guilty for those sins because they have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of his son, we are set free from our sins. We are forgiven simply because of the grace of God. Nothing that you can say or do would earn you that salvation. Here's one of my favorite verses found in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The scripture says that for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And so it's faith alone. It's the grace of God that would save anybody in this room today. It's by faith alone. And this is not your own doing. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you could do to be accepted by God. Nothing. It's a gift of God, he says. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. If there was, listen, if I could do anything to earn God's forgiveness and salvation, then I would, I would brag about it, I'd boast about it. And that'd be the focus of my life. But he says it doesn't work like that. It's purely an act of his grace. It's purely an act of his love that we do not deserve. The apostle Peter is preaching a sermon one day in Acts chapter two, it's recorded as he preaches the gospel that people say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter responds and he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are thinking, How, what do I have to do to receive Jesus? How, what do I have to do to be saved? It's simply that, repent of your sins. A baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is an outward expression of the inward repentance and commitment that we've made. It's, it's symbolic that as I go under the ground, it's symbolizing the old Trent died. It's symbolizing the death of Jesus. And as I come up out of the water, it symbolizes I'm a new man in Christ. It symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus. So it's simply you going public with your faith. Some of you have never done that. Maybe you were baptized as a baby, uh, but you've never allowed baptism to follow your decision to serve and experience salvation in Christ. And so I would encourage you to make that decision today to move forward in obedience. Now, what does the word repent mean? It's, it's kind of a word we don't typically use, but the word repent just simply means turn. So as I mentioned earlier, we're living what, the way we wanna live, how we wanna live. 
only for ourselves. We don't care about God. We don't care about parents. We don't care about anything. We just want to do what we want to do. And repentance means that I'm turning from my way of thinking and my way of living, and I'm turning to someone, and that someone is Jesus. So I turn to Jesus, and I commit my life to Him. And by faith, I say I'm trusting that the death and resurrection of Jesus is securing my salvation. He's my Lord. He's my King. And I'm going to serve and worship Him for the rest of my life. Now my attitude is is not whatever I want to do. My attitude is whatever Jesus wants me to do. My attitude is I want to serve. My attitude is I want to grow in my faith in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. You might be asking, okay, so what does that mean for me, Trent? Because I walk in here today and uh, I've experienced a lot of heavy stuff, man. I've gone through and I've done a lot of of heavy things. I don't know if I I can make this step. Maybe I should go home and, and work on my marriage Maybe I should go home and think about it some more. Maybe I could go home and, and figure this, because I don't know if this is for me. Here's, here's what the scripture would, would teach to you. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, anyone who looks and turns to Jesus for salvation will be saved. That means you today. God has given you an opportunity this morning Maybe you didn't realize it when you walked in. Maybe you were hoping that this would just be a normal day. You'd eat a couple of hot dogs, hear some good songs and go home. But the Spirit of God is heavy in this place today. Some of you are realizing that you are not ready for the return of Jesus. You are not ready for the rapture. If you are honest today in your heart, you have never repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus. And so there's some fear and some anxiety in your heart today. The good news is I'm about to give you an opportunity to make a decision and experience the grace and love of Jesus by giving your life to him. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.